hello hello that didn't sound right hello hello <laughs> that's more natural like a human would say it uh it's me ed gallo joined by shriram Raleigh darn we're the, hello hello yeah that that's a good one wow <laughs> um, we're the fight sites mma podcast co-hosts together uh after danny martin became deceased um he's alive he just doesn't write about or talk about mma much anymore but at least he's back on twitter so that's nice Danny's alive. Um, so if you're seeing Danny, like, you know, being alive on Twitter, and you're like, wow, did they, like, just kick Danny off the show now that he's back? It's like, no, he's still he's still retired. He's just back for friendship and, you know, posting on Twitter, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, he has a spot if he ever wants it, but it's... I'll fight him for it. Oh, uh, that's a good idea, actually. Danny's super jacked, so I'm not really sure how that'd go with your wrestling credentials. It'll be like those YouTube videos where it's like bodybuilder versus guy who has trained before, and it goes the same way every time. Um, <laughs> all those videos are identical. Uh, but yeah, we love we love Danny, and he just, he's alive, so I just want to give you that update. But this isn't about that. This podcast is about mixed martial arts and the fights that happen within it, and the most recent card was UFC 258. We're going to break down the card for sure, uh, mostly the main event. And a couple other fights in the card, but I don't think it was a super intriguing card just from a analytical discussion standpoint besides the main event. And the thing about the main event is that if you're a patron of the fight site, you already know that Sharam and I broke it down live while it was happening uh, with our commentary video. So both in podcast form and in video form, if you subscribe to the fight site on Patreon for only $3, only $3. You can watch the fight with the video in decent quality uh, and listen to our live commentary and our commentary afterward and before. Um, it's pretty pretty great. I'd say I think we did a really good job with that one. Yeah, honestly, even outside of us doing a really good job, the best part is that you get to watch it without the official UFC commentary, oh, that's, that's which is just the, an additional perk. Yeah, that's the main selling point. I forgot that. Thank you. But yeah, so it's not just $3 for that video. It's for... Pretty much everything we have on our Patreon, which is, you know, past event commentaries and a lot of other exclusive content. So, yeah, you should you should do that. And uh, the proceeds go toward paying our staff. Uh, that's how they make their money. We don't run ads on the website. We don't really have any other source of income besides the merchandise. So if you want our staff to get money in for Sharam to be able to afford new audio equipment, then that's, that's, how <laughs> that's something. That is how we get it. So... If you care about the audio quality of this podcast, then you should donate a little bit. Uh, But yeah, so the card happened. Uh, The main event was Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Byrne for the welterweight title. Before we get into the fight, um, there was discussion before and after about if Gilbert Burns was like actually the number one contender because the UFC, like their entire marketing during the event was Gilbert Burns is number one. He's the number one contender. It's like, but his, but he wasn't, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think there was a decent argument, like, if you just look at the names that Burns beat, there's, like, a decent argument for it, in that, you know, Tyron Woodley was, like, the semi-recent former champion when he beat him, but, like, it's, it's Tyron Woodley, and I don't want to be, like, super mean to any fighter on the podcast, because, like, that's just, you know, it it comes off better in writing, but I'm not sure how valuable of a win Tyron Woodley is at this point in his career. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same goes with Damian Maya who looked, uh, he started to look even older than he usually was against, like, Anthony Rocco Martin. Um, Gunnar Nelson is, like, a top 20-ish, and Kinchenko is, like, a top 15-ish. 
So, like, it, it's tough. Like, I think Gilbert Burns really, um, he proved that he is elite in this fight, in my opinion, but I'm still not sure he deserved the title shot. Yeah, definitely elite. I was super impressed with him. He, he's, um, he wasn't, I don't know how to say this, but he didn't seem like a much, like, higher tier of fighter than I thought he was originally. He just was able to, uh, you know, develop and stick to a smart game plan and really, like, push his advantages really hard in an effective, you know, urgent way. Uh, and, uh, like, you can't, you don't always expect that from fighters. Like, you have to kind of hedge a little bit and assume they're going to make mistakes and assume they're not going to fight the best fight and, you know, figure out if they're going to be able to still win or have a lot of success. I'm not doing that, but he, he did. He did pretty much exactly what he needed to do pretty early on. Um, obviously, the wheels fell off a little bit later, but... Uh, right from the jump, uh, like it was, it was funny because in the commentary, uh, I asked Shiram while they were walking out, I was like, okay, what does Burns need to do? And Shiram basically outlined all the things that he would end up doing <laughs> very early on. Um, so I guess let's jump into that now. So why, why was Gilbert Burns having so much success early on? Uh, right. So Usman. So first of all, the big issues that we had with Burns in this fight was uh, a the clinch, b the cardio, and c the ring craft, and Coming out, like, the big edge that he had going in was just danger in exchanges, right? Like, Burns isn't the most uh, defensively sound or even layered offensive boxer, but he's pretty dangerous when he gets his fight and he's able to, like, you know, swing in combination in the pocket. And Usman's defense is, like, he has specific defensive maneuvers that he can do with very specific offensive threats, like he did against Tyron Woodley. But we saw against Colby Covington, his defense can be overloaded relatively consistently, which means that... If Gilbert Burns came out hot, refused to concede the cage early, and just, you know, committed to, okay, this fight's going to be one round, I don't want my cardio to matter, so I'm just going to come out and try to kill him early, that makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of what Gilbert Burns did. He came out, took the front foot immediately. Usman kind of helped it out by, like, not pressing the pressure early, but Usman does tend to feel his way into a fight a little bit, so that's something. But Burns came out really hot, took the center. He showed a commitment to uh, keeping the center throughout the fight, in fact. Uh, obviously, that fell apart a little bit when he started losing, but, you know, that's just natural. Um, but he took the center. He started wailing on Usman in the pocket. The cross counter was what dropped him. And that's a really, really smart way to deal with the fight because Usman's jab is how he uh, pushes his opponents back historically, uh, how he sets up his takedown entries and his clinch entries. And uh, Burns just, you know, he had a couple specific weapons for both that and the reactive shot. Uh, the intercepting knee at range was a pretty smart way to keep Usman away from that and just, you know, hurt him badly early. And that's pretty much all we can expect from someone who's not as deep a fighter as Usman. Like, I think against Usman, the longer the fight goes, if it's going to go badly, you're probably just best off unloading as early as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I thought Burns had a weapon for pretty much every defensive liability that Usman has. Like, the jab, he took it away with the, with the cross counter and the overhand counter. Um, his level-changing threat, he took away with uh, lead uppercuts. Not lead hand, but rear hand leading with yeah. his rear hand <laughs> uppercuts <laughs> and, and the knee. Um, and pressuring him obviously made it more difficult. So you know, right away, if you pressure the pressure grappler, they're either going to need to have good ring craft or have weapons to put you off from that or a reactive shot you in. Usman doesn't have good defensive ring craft on the back foot, which... Uh, I think that was always there, 
but uh, <laughs> probably small shout out to Ryan Wagner because uh, I, I said before the fight just privately I was like I think Usman's going to start to look more like a Whitman striker and it's probably going to bode well for this he's like oh you mean he's going to have bad <laughs> ring craft off the back foot I was like no but then it turned out to be kind of true um, not that you can blame Whitman for it, it's just you know that those are some gaps that they they don't address as quickly so like when fighters start to look good in really one respect it, it's a little more shocking when they don't look good in, in other uh, stages but yes yeah, so I, I thought Burns did a really good job taking away Usman's weapons and really put him in a, a bad spot early on um, the other thing that that I thought was that Usman probably was looking to clinch with him a little bit people were saying you know why didn't he wrestle with him why didn't he clinch with him I think he was looking to clinch with him a little bit in those situations but he's never been like a fluid clinch entry guy like it's always looked kind of sloppy <laughs> when he tries to clinch people it's like a lot of reaching a lot of ducking his head uh and that's where all those like linear intercepting strikes came in like the uppercut and the knee um so I thought Burns was came out hot and was doing all the right things hurt him really badly a bunch of time well not really badly but hurt him badly um a bunch of times some people are saying that Usman kind of overreacts just the way he gets hit just because of the way his defensive reactions are he's like really looks like he takes it really badly but maybe wasn't as bothered by the strikes as it may seem what, what do you make of that yeah I mean I think it's kind of the Lesnar thing like we've seen Usman have a, a pretty monstrous like even in this fight well, especially in this fight, because he hasn't taken as much damage before, but Usman has looked very durable in the past. It's just the kind of thing where, like, he a lot of his reactions to getting hit are just ducking his head and, you know, just leaving the exchange pretty messily. And that works because guys don't really want to push exchanges against someone who's that big of a reactive shot threat. So, I mean, it's effective in a way. It's just that this fight showed some more liabilities against someone who can... Um, smartly pair off their offense like for example the overhand and the uppercut change up was really nice from gilbert burns uh the uppercut didn't just work to like keep usman off the clinch entries and the takedowns right. but it also punished uh usman's uh, default reaction to like when he gets behind a shoulder on the jab the uppercut could uh dissuade that and the overhand could play off that if he wasn't doing that uh so usman or burns rider did a really nice job varying his counter selection to deal with that kind of uh defensive discomfort uh-huh. yeah i think um yeah, all this being said, it was it's not like we, I I changed I don't know about you, but I didn't change my mind about Usman's durability because I mean yeah. he, he took full power shots that were set up really well and you know got hurt a little bit, but I mean he, he was fine, <laughs> like he ended up being okay, <laughs> like his legs were still under him afterward, um, he recovered really quickly, so he's still super durable and has a big old head, and uh, <laughs> yeah I, I was impressed by that. It, obviously it was a bad look, it was sloppy stuff, but it wasn't like my estimation of Usman really didn't go down. I was really just my estimation of Burns going up that I didn't know that he had that in him. Agreed. Um, <clears throat> I think the wheels started to fall off pretty quickly, mostly because Usman stopped feeling oh, the, the dynamic of the fight changed. Like, Usman was going to be the guy who was pressuring and had to push forward, and then Burns had that moment, and, and it shifted to where Burns kind of had the responsibility to be the one pressuring, which is good for him. But also it turned out that he was not nearly clean enough pressuring to deal with Usman interrupting his pressure with his jab, which is kind of where it started. And also like catching his kicks and just reading his offense really well and, and continuing to, uh, as Luke Thomas would say, split his timing, like striking with a half beat, interrupting him, uh, screwing up all of his, his striking entries. Uh, is that where you saw it start to shift? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Burns had a lot of answers to the jab specifically. It's just that Usman started drawing those counters out, and that's how we saw the um, the knockdown in round two, where Usman would like faint the jab, draw out uh, Burns's right hand, and then just blast him with a pull counter. I think that's how it happened, something like that. But he yeah. drew a counter and punched him in the head, and uh, that's kind of where it stopped working for Burns, where Usman started. Um, as you mentioned, splitting his timing, quote-unquote, uh, changing the rhythm on the jab, drawing it out. And honestly, Usman's jab in itself, like, you don't really need to land big right hands if you're Kamaru Usman. Just uh, fainting and landing that really jolting step-in jab that uh, messed Burns up and eventually led to the finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously, Burn, Burns gassed out, which we knew was going to happen. He, he has, I mean, yeah. It's not like he's gassed hard in his previous welterweight fights it's just that he's worn down enough where if you're fighting someone like this man it's it's you're doomed (laughs) yeah he's the best cardio in the division he's the strongest in the division he doesn't stop fighting you he doesn't like give you space to to stop having to fight him so we knew that if he gassed like just given the disparities that already existed it was going to go really poorly and you know those advantages he was finding on the back foot just continued to build and then once uh burns is a little less explosive a little less uh of a threat on the counter, then Usman could get his jab going in the lead again, and then that pressured Burns to try to do more. And uh, Burns did try to shoot on him a couple times. I thought they were really great shots. They're well timed. They're very explosive. I, I was impressed. I've been impressed by his offensive wrestling. I think he's got a he's built up some really nice looks. It's the the issue is that his wrestling is very uh, energy inefficient. Like he, it has to be a big double. It has to be a big double into a transition into like a body locker has to be a throw like it's nothing he's not doesn't really have much procedural offense like he can't like shoot short into a single and like go through the steps to finish a single and do things that uh are a little less possible when you're when you're super tired um but yeah i I thought his wrestling looked good but with regard to usman not wrestling i went into this in a little more depth on my podcast i think it's pretty simple um he probably was intending to uh, you can't say if he was or wasn't because of how things turned out so quickly. Um, like, he got rocked yeah. within the first minute, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, it happened really fast. So you can't really say whether or not that was his intention early on because I think, you know, one thing you might be able to infer from this fight is that he wasn't comfortable uh, wasn't comfortable shooting naked in, in open space uh, at the legs on Burns, probably because of, you know, guillotine threats and, uh, you know, putting himself in bad spots and maybe he didn't want to clinch in open space either. Um, but like even he he does have open space shots, but a lot of it comes off of setups that Burns is punishing, like the the rear hand to the body sets up his snatch single, that was taken away by the level intercepting strikes, and yep. then everything else is really built off his jab and and getting to the cage off his jab, and his jab was taken away. So the things that let him wrestle were taken away pretty early, and then by the time that he was able to get those weapons back. The fight was already turning so hard in the feet that he didn't need to anymore. Like he was already gonna like on it, well on his way to winning the fight. Uh, by the time wrestling would have been an option again, um, so I, I don't, I don't think it was like he made a decision <laughs> to not wrestle him and like. But I think it just Burns stopped him from doing it early on. Just uh, that that's anti wrestling. You know, he took away the, oh, the, yeah. the things that that is, a de- that is by definition anti wrestling. He took away the things that would have made it possible to wrestle. Um, but then, you know, by the time that it was available, it wasn't really going to work. And uh, I did skip over defense as well. Uh, when Burns was shooting on him, there were great shots. First of all, his hips are ridiculous. 
Um, yeah. You just saw like Usman hitting back a little bit, not hitting full sprawl, just kind of getting his hips back a little bit and pressuring in from there, and just fighting the grips and like keeping him, keeping him tall, keeping him static, and pulling off the wrists and fighting the grips and just doing you know good good defense. But you can also tell he's just an absolute monster. Uh, just very strong and heavy, and that grip is probably insane. So uh, if Burns didn't have good finishing fundamentals, which he doesn't. Um, that was never going to go well for him in those positions. So, uh, yeah, the wrestling was a little bit interesting. I didn't, uh, but just based on the, the way the fight went, I'm not, there's no, there's no puzzle there. There's no mystery for me. Like I know why the wrestling didn't happen offensively. And I think it would have been a mistake for him to push it. He really didn't need to. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, Usman could have been a little bit more insistent in terms of ring craft, in terms of yeah. you know, coming out early pressuring, cause he kind of took the back foot. And I think it's, Different from what happened against Colby Covington, because Covington didn't have nearly the same depth of responses that Burns did to uh, being pressured or being jabbed. But it's still kind of a question of, is Usman still, well, I don't know whether I can stay still. Because if you look at the guys that Usman kind of, you know, just kind of pushed back against all their um, efforts, it's like guys like Tyron Woodley, who are just hilariously shallow, and guys like RDA, who are just never really prepared to deal with that kind of threat in the first place in terms of both firepower and like skill set and Gilbert Burns posed a different threat so I'm willing to give Usman the benefit of doubt here in fights like Leon Edwards who's going to take the back foot but it's also kind of interesting to see Usman like settling into a fight that's not the pressure grappler when he has the opportunity like even late in the fight like I would I would have expected once Burns gassed Usman to just you know get into the clinch and beat him up there rather than try to finish him on the feet but, you know, maybe that was the plan, and he just landed that jab and finished him from there. I don't know. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Agreed on all counts. Um, yeah, for more for more reactions to that fight, I think you should check out the commentary. I think we covered all the broad strokes things that happened there. Uh, yep. Very impressive win for Usman. We also talked about the who's next of it all and Leon Edwards and lots of other fun stuff that you're probably wondering about. Uh, but Leon Edwards, I don't even know what's going to happen with him because he was supposed to fight Colby, and then Colby ducked him, and now I don't know who he's going to fight, but uh, it looks like they're trying to do the Masvidal rematch for Usman, which, I mean, it's not like why? it's an uninteresting fight, but, like, yeah, but why? Because, like, there's, there's better options, and he did beat him pretty convincingly. Like, he won at least four rounds off of him. Like the only one that yeah. he, maybe he won the round was like he was kicking him a lot in the first round and like struck him a decent amount when they were clinched and like had the better offense while getting positionally out grappled. So I mean, that was like basically all he had. And uh, they say short notice can't, but it, like is a bit more notice going to make him have better ring craft and better yeah, like wrestling and grappling? <laughs> yeah, like all things considered, Masvidal even taking the first round is pretty impressive. And yeah, that's exactly. about as much as I could expect him to do in that kind of fight. Like, it never looked like a fight that he was going to win with more cardio. Yeah, I don't think cardio was the issue there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's uh, that was weird. <laughs> so it's a weird thing that's happening. Um, also, Usman apparently had a broken nose in that fight, so like maybe it's just an opportunity for Usman to beat him even worse. Who knows? But, uh, Dumb, dumb stuff happening in the welterweight division as usual with the UFC matchmaking. Okay, uh, Alexa Grasso beat Macy Barber. Uh, we're pretty happy about that, right? Yeah, we support that. I support that. Yeah, Macy Barber. I mean, just I, I'm I'm full of angst. Uh, I'm very resentful toward most of the things the UFC does. If you couldn't tell from what we just said before this, um, 
So the UFC was pushing her super hard. I think she's contender series, so she's contender series. Yeah, she is. Be the youngest uh, UFC champ, and they're like, yeah, and they were pushing her really hard. And like, then you watched her fight, and you're like, oh, you're you're like not not that good um, for <laughs> for your division. Like, I don't think that's gonna happen. And then she she lost to uh, to Roxy, right? Yeah, she got modified. Yeah, but then that wasn't enough uh, to to kill her momentum. They're like, no, it's gonna happen. They put her in a co-main event. They're like, this is she's gonna bounce back here. So. Just for the good of the meta, just for the UFC uh, failing its plans, it, this had to happen. And uh, Alexa Grasso did some good counter punching. I think she did. Yeah, there was I a point where she like countered to the body and hit a left hook, and that's like all I really remember from the fight. Yeah. So good job, good job, Alexa <laughs> Grasso. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum versus Ian Heinish. I think um, the main thing about this fight. Uh, was about how correct I was about Kelvin Gastelum. I think that is the Very. takeaway here, um, is me being right once again. Uh, last week we talked about Kelvin being shot or not, and people are like, oh, he's washed, he's shot, because he looked so terrible. And, and first of all, the Till fight, he looked especially terrible. The Hermanson fight, physically he didn't look good in the scale, obviously, but also that fight was goofy because he <laughs> lap dropped Hermanson and then it got leg blocked. I'm like, okay, he's never been a good grappler. Like, that is not really an indication of where he's at uh, in terms of like being shot or not. But I-, I was just saying, even if you think there's signs of him declining, you also have to realize that he's showing up in bad shape and not trying that hard. And any day now, he could show up in shape and, you know, quotations, motivated and uh, and put on a much better performance. And I think that's what you saw here. Um, but with the caveat that he is definitely past his athletic prime. He just doesn't look like the same kind of like athletic puncher that he used to be. Would you agree with that from what you saw? Yeah, I would. Uh, I think Gastelum, I think a lot of Gastelum's issue at this point is just confidence. And I think the confidence issue flows directly from all of his other issues, which is that he's not really winning the boxing that much anymore. Honestly, I think it's still kind of concerning that we haven't really seen Gastelum's durability be tested that much since the Adesanya loss, mm-hmm. because like Heinrich landed some big flying knees, right? But even aside from that, most of the fight wasn't particularly damaging, and I think there's a decent case to be made that Gastelum is growing a little bit more tentative uh, and less willing to exchange after the um, the fifth round of the Adesanya fight, where it pretty much just got completely destroyed. Like I'm still not completely sure whether that fight ruined one of the things that really defined Gastelum on his rise, which is eating everything that you throw and continuing <laughs> to throw at you. So, like, I'm not sure he wins the Jacker, like, that exact Jackery fight. I'm not exactly sure whether he gets backed off by that shot in, like, a rematch. So, yeah. it, it's weird. I think Gastelum is, he's pretty much, like, the issue that I've always had with Gastelum is that he's very static in terms of the things that he does. He's not, like, a great game planner. Outside of the Adesanya fight, uh, which was just like the performance of his life. He's pretty much just looked like the same fighter every time doing the same two or three things. And that still applies, but in a good way here, because he's still the same kind of um, boxer that he used to be, like has a straight left hand, has a one-two, but not much depth there. And now I think his confidence issues are turning him back into what he was uh, in like the Ultimate Fighter, which is something yeah. that uh, Danny Martin brought up and like the group chat, which is that, Gastelum's draw in The Ultimate Fighter was that he was like a mini Cain Velasquez and uh, that he was like a Mexican pressure grappler type. A pace wrestler. Yeah. And now he's kind of going back to that when his boxing isn't necessarily as trustworthy as he maybe thought it was. I don't know. It's tough to say. I, don't, I never gave him a great shot against like the top of middleweight 
and now it's kind of worse just because this approach is worse optimized for it. But, you know, it's interesting. Heinish was never the test to really, like, make Kelvin look bad. I expected this one to be super silly, and that's what it was. He should fight Derek Brunson. Um, oh, that's a good one. Because that's, like, the best, one of the best wrestlers in the division who he would have been able to outstrike normally, like, in his, his prime, whenever that is like circa Adesanya fight. Um, so I think that's a good test of like, are you, do you have usefulness on the feet left? Like, can you win fights on the feet? Uh, Cause I think if he tries to pace grapple Brunson, it's not going to go that well. Yeah. Um, Yoel Romero had a hard time doing that. So it's just, yep. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a good one. I don't know who he's fighting. If Derek Brunson has a fight, this is the first person that pops in my head. Uh, yeah. He's fighting Kevin Holland. He'll probably win that. Um, yeah. Just because Darren Stewart grappled. Kevin Holland. <laughs> Uh, that that's probably a good reason to pick him, but yep. <clears throat> Kelvin can actually go pretty far with this approach, I think, because the division just isn't that good. So I don't think it's like, oh, this is a new kind of guy that can definitely fight for the title and blah blah blah. I just think you know, for for extending his career, for continuing to win fights and stay in the top ten and be relevant and you know, not get knocked out a bunch, I think this is actually really good for him as long as he can maintain and be consistent and keep that level of motivation and keep training hard and, and showing up in shape and, and wrestling. Um, I talked about like the, the specifics of the wrestling a little more on my podcast, um, but it's nothing, uh, nothing different, something different than we've seen from him like throughout his career. It's just like all of his best wrestling looks showed up in this fight, which I am pretty excited about. Um, he's, he's just a really good mat wrestler, a really good scrambler, which is funny because he doesn't have a good ground game, but he is a good mat wrestler. Um, you know, I, he was running his feet well on his doubles and the feet. Um, his defense didn't look so great up in space, but his, his defensive wrestling has never been that good. So um, he didn't look anything like he was new in any respect, but he just got back to close to his best form with regard to wrestling and grappling, which has never been great, but it's, it was one of his best the best things he had going for him it was one of his biggest strengths and now that his striking is uh going to be less effective just because of the way he's dropping off a little bit athletically it's really important that he does this so um i think just depending on the matchmaking he could uh, he could definitely keep winning some fights and uh get people excited about him again which is going to be fun because then when he fights like people that we know like stylistically should dunk on him people are going to be really <laughs> excited about it and like you know bet on him and then if you're a better you can be like oh well i know I know what's going on here and, and make some more bets, but uh, we'll see. We'll see based on the matchmaking. Yeah, I mean, I think it seems pretty likely they're just going to fight someone like Jared Cannonier next, which would be mm-hmm. a, a relatively interesting fight just because Cannonier's like, somewhat wrestleable, but also probably just kills him on the feet. Uh, but, I mean, I think the other issue with this is that a lot of Gastelum's... Like, even if you look at fights like Michael Bisping, Gastelum was kind of losing until he found that shot, and he's kind of taking that away from himself with this kind of approach... Like, if you look at, for example, a Whitaker fight, like, a lot of people... I was never one of those people who thought Gastelum had much of a shot against Whitaker. But a lot of it was just, you know, Whitaker tends to have these moments where he's like, oh, he gets hit very hard sometimes. Uh, And if Gastelum decides to go in and wrestle Robert Whitaker, it would be a very ugly fight for him. I want to see him try to do that, for sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It'd be a brilliant fight for me, but it'd be very bad for him. One of our patrons asked me today, uh, is Robert Whitaker the best defensive wrestler, the the best defensive wrestler in the UFC right now? Um, And he might be, but we we need a recent performance of someone trying to wrestle him, so that would be a good one. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, with Aldo, yeah, that's true. He might be, though. 
It's very possible. Do you have anything left to say about Kelvin Gastelum or Ian Heinish, whose name we didn't say once? <laughs> <laughs> Heinish with the flying knees. Uh, I mean, Heinish was... Uh, I expected this one to be weirdly wrestly, just because both guys do, like, yeah. uh, the counter-wrestling stuff more than they do uh, actual anti-wrestling or, like, grip fighting and stuff. So, I mean, th- it pretty much went the way. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, um, Heinish has beaten a couple of grapplers, I think it's precisely two. Um, yeah. we, we've structured this whole archetype about him based on two fights. Um, but yeah, two, two Brazilian grapplers who tried to wrestle and grapple him a lot. And he just did a good job defending him, made it hard for them to hold him down and gas them out in that process. And then like top game them and beat them that way. Uh, then we were like, okay, well, Calvin's not going to try to wrestle him. So, uh, that really won't be in play for him, but we thought the only way he could win was if Calvin tried to wrestle him. But then, Kelvin didn't gas, and he just kept continuing to wrestle him successfully. So that's my thoughts on that fight. The flying knee was good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Ricky Simone. Pretty much it. Brian Kelleher. Um, I mean, I expected Simone to win this fight just because Kelleher um, is kind of more of an opportunist, if that makes sense. Like, a lot of his wins, like, for example, against Uriel Contra, was, like, off landing a big shot and finding the guillotine, and he's, in general, kind of a... Um, <clears throat> He's vulnerable in the grappling. We saw against we saw it against Tito Vera as well. So Simone just kind of top gamed him, did a nice job pressuring and keeping Kelleher's offense uh, a bit muted. But I mean, pretty routine Ricky Simone performance at this point. I think he's pretty good, um, especially for like a bantamweight division where there are a lot of guys who are weirdly liable to the wrestling. Like we saw against Rob Font that that isn't necessarily a route to winning for him because he's so liable defensively. Mm. But you know, like there are guys he could beat on top. He like the um, the Marab win is aging pretty well, even though I'm not sure he'd get it again. And let's take a look at the rankings. We are well prepared. Very well prepared. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't hate him against someone like Chito Vera or uh, Cody Stamen. I mean, Stamen might be ugly, actually, but it's uh, there are a bunch of fun fights the for him. The fight would be ugly. Cody Stamen is not ugly. We don't think that. Oh, yeah, Cody Stamen is great. Position of this podcast. <laughs> it's important to clarify these things. I don't want to get canceled for calling Cody uh, Stamen ugly. Yeah, Cody Stamen's going to come back and say that he, like, we've already took my mom one, out on a date. We've had one run-in with the Cody Stamen already. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Ricky Simone's a good guy to have around in the division. He's just, you know, very solid, uh, you know, not not incompetent on the feet, you know, has good attributes for it, you know, pressures pretty uh, insistently, and, uh, you know, is a very well-rounded wrestler and a good top player. So I think he's, he's good to have around because it's just a good t- – I mean – First of all, I, I don't mind watching that. And yeah. two, it's a good test for other fighters. Like, it's, you know, you, you learn a lot more about a division. There's a lot more truth in the division when people are fighting a lot of different types of matchups. And that's a matchup that you don't always, uh, a style you don't always see. Um, the later weights, uh, someone like very uh, methodical like that. Usually it's like very high paced, scrambly grappling. This is uh, the grappling of a heavier fighter, which is actually good in this case. Yeah. More solid control. Um, I don't really want to talk about the Marquez Patola fight. Do you have any thoughts on the Miley Cyrus incident? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, even getting that kind of attention is a big deal. So, like, good on him, I guess. But that's it. That's all we have to say there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. More importantly, Adolfo Vieira lost, and that was very. Fun. <laughs> that was the best. Um, he didn't just lose; he got tapped out. Yeah, he got submitted, and didn't he? He got 
No. People are saying this is... People were making jokes about this being two losses in a row for him. What was that? Is, did something funny happen in the, in the Safarov fight? Uh, no, nah, I think it was like a grappling comp thing. I'm not sure. But uh, I don't remember Safarov nearly like kicked his eye off and then got tapped off. Got yeah, tapped I didn't off, understand rather. what people were saying. They were like, oh, it's two in a row for him. He's been... T- I, I, don't, I didn't know where that was coming from. So yeah. anyway... Um, I, I talked about this on the other podcast as well, so for double listeners, I'm sorry. Um, but also, thank you for listening to both. Um, <laughs> he he came out and uh, basically, like, muscle pressured him to the cage. It wasn't, like, good pressure. It was just like, I am big and strong. Get over here. Um, <laughs> and shot him shot him onto the cage. Um, I think this is the first takedown. He, uh, he, he lifted him with a double off the cage. Another time, like, maybe off the get-up, he... Uh, transition to the single and he like pulled him off the cage of the single and redoubled and it was actually looking pretty good um the stuff he was doing on the cage with his wrestling and then obviously you know cut through his guard really easily passed really easily uh, mounted him took his back and uh then he decided to go for an arm bar off the back and uh i think even that was going well but then when he went to uh you know, swim for the leg hit the swim move and, and turn him over to to uh, his back just to finish the arm bar more easily he like threw him he threw him off or Hernandez jumped with it something like that happened and he got free of the situation and that's uh that's when everything went downhill <laughs> yeah I mean I think um the armbar from the back is something that I don't really like seeing like it's relatively reliable if you're good at it obviously but it's also like Jacare did it to lose um control against Kelvin Gastelum and that's where the um the gassing started for him, and Verdum did it against Volkov like several times, which was kind of weird. Like, uh, I think it's kind of a weird jujitsu meta thing where, like, if you're going straight for the sub, it's like a good thing. But also in MMA, there are a lot of guys who are probably better dealt with by just hanging out on top and punching them. So, uh, I think Ryan went into it a lot in a lot more detail and a lot smarter than I could. But it's uh, it's an interesting question because I mean, if Vieira was able to just stay on top for the entire round. I'm not sure whether he still would have gassed and died in round two, because I'm not sure whether he's been out of round one in his UFC career yet. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Hernandez really didn't need a lot of craft to beat Vieira up, just like these really big flurries that uh, put Vieira on skates for, like, the entire rest of the fight. He was also gassed, and uh, that's pretty much all that it took. So, yeah. Okay, he went out of round one against Oscar Pijota, but if I remember correctly, he was just grappling him, like, that entire fight. So... Yeah. Odd performance. Odd is a good word for it. But, yeah, like, we didn't expect him to have, like, any craft in the back foot or be able to strike. Yep. So when those things happen, we're like, yeah, this makes sense. Just the, the, the speed with which he gassed was uh, pretty impressive. Um, pretty much immediately after he failed the armbar, he was gassed. Um, perhaps even during the armbar, he was gassing. And uh, I don't like hearing Very people possible. say that the armbar off the back is a bad idea in MMA. Because I love the armbar off the back, but actually I don't do it as much belly down because I'm not good there. I do it off a uh, seated, seated back. So. Oh, yeah. Therefore, it's better. <laughs> Very true. Uh, yeah, that that fight was funny. Um, Vieira, I think, will be fine. Like, it's not that big of a deal for him to have gaping holes in his game as a middleweight because it's, yeah. it's middleweight. So Everyone he does. To, he doesn't have to improve that much to get better. We were aiming to be more positive and say less mean things. I, I, I gave the directive that we should do that, and here I am <laughs> saying that you know, middleweights are so bad. Uh, I mean, that's being positive about Vieira, though. Yes, I think he can do good. 
now for something something inspiring, something exciting is uh, Bilal Muhammad's uh, masterclass. Yes. Take I'm it. always here for Bilal Muhammad. I mean, I think Diego Lima is not a particularly compelling opponent to start with, so like, I guess we're still being mean. Oops. But I mean, it is what it is. Like, uh, this isn't. This was a fight that Bilal Muhammad was expect was expected to win, and you know he pressured the shit out of him, beat him up, did some nice body work, which was really nice. Um, I mean, it was the strongest striking performance I think I can remember seeing from Bilal Muhammad because a lot of his game was you know uh, punching into takedowns and that kind of thing, and I mean. We've always kind of respected Bilal Muhammad as someone who could give really good fighters tough fights. Outside of Vicente Luque, he did that to uh, Jeff Neal, who, against he was at a pretty big athletic disadvantage against him. And, I mean, honestly, one thing is that we've kind of underestimated Bilal as an athlete. Um, it's kind of the Benil Daryush thing, where he has, like, a weird body sometimes, and he doesn't look athletic, but he can push a, a monstrous pace. That's what he did in this fight. And Lima's, like, Lima's face was hanging off his head by the end of the fight. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, very impressed by Bilal Muhammad. I'm not, like, I don't think Liam, Lima challenged him enough to really say whether Muhammad's, like, a different fighter, if that makes sense. Mm. But he has a, a very competent skill set, and I'm excited to see him against someone like, I don't know. I think he called out Li Jing Liang. I think that's a fun fight. No, I'd like to see that one. one. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, he looked like a fighter who was very, uh, had a very well-built-out game, stuck to what he was doing, and, and had the necessary tools and competencies to make his game happen. Um, you know, some of his drawbacks might be, uh, you know, attribute specific. Not that yep. he has bad attributes. He's in great shape. Um, and, uh, he's strong. He's just not yeah. particularly fast, but like, even so, he's like still did, um, some cool athletic looking stuff. Like his skip up knee into the double entry against the cage was really cool. Um, a lot of his double entries look really cool. And I talked about why he was having trouble getting those on the cage. And a lot of it just had to do with. Um, how deep his level changes, which is usually a good thing, but a lot, but against someone with really long legs that's that big, like Diego Lima was actually putting him onto the harder part of the legs to take down at the wider part of the base. Um, but no, nothing, nothing bad, nothing bad. I didn't like. Um, so he looked really good. That was fun. And uh, Chris Gutierrez beat up Andre Yule pretty bad. Yep. And that uh. made sense. <laughs> yeah, it did. Uh, we pretty much expected how this fight would go. Uh, outside of, like, maybe Gutierrez having some volume issues, like, he's not, I think, just completely killing um, Vince Morales with, like, leg kicks as soon as he wanted to distorted that a little bit. But uh, I think you will just, you know, moving around on the outside gave Gutierrez a bit of pause. But uh, where the fight really turned was when Gutierrez started attacking Ewell's exits with the leg kick, where Ewell would, like, dart in and try to get off on an angle, and Gutierrez would kick him on that. And that really, really hurt Ewell, uh, and eventually gave Gutierrez a lot of space to um, to pressure him to the fence and start doing these off-the-cage showtime kicks and stuff. So, I mean, it was cool. I, I enjoyed the performance from Gutierrez. Uh, Ewell's still a ton of fun. It's just this was never a fight that I expected him to look good in because of the kicking. Uh, he doesn't really have great responses to that, and his stance isn't very optimized for it. And as much of his game is um, dependent on like mobility and being able to get in and out quickly, so Gutierrez did a nice job chopping that down. He was pretty late on the draw there, I think. I think like yeah. without the head kick in the first round, it might have looked like a different fight in terms of like you know Ewell throwing slightly more of volume for the first two rounds before Gutierrez figured him out and 10 hitted him in the third. But, you know, fun fight. I, I like Unranked Bantamweight a lot. Me too. Um, yeah, I guess my gripe with Gutierrez at this point is that uh, he doesn't really have, a ne like, a next gear. He can't, like, yeah. pick up the rhythm and pick up the volume, even when he's, like, 
winning and the guy's on one leg and like you gotta you gotta go off on him a little bit like he's being kind of safe but also like throwing showtime kicks and like make up your mind man that's not safe <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think that's going to limit him a decent amount in the future, especially because he's not like a great defensive grappler or wrestler. Um, he's, he's decent with wrestling, but he's not a good grappler. And uh, he's relying on like just being better than people on the feet, which I think definitely has its limits, especially when you're not that <laughs> good on the feet you know, compared to the division. It's just a, a really tough place to be. If he was a heavier fighter this exact same approach, this exact same skill set, I would say he could, you know, go really far. But just, it's going to be tough. Like, if he fought someone like Hione Barcelos, I think he would get shredded. Um, I mean, he already did. Oh, yeah. And he did get shredded. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. I, I forget that Barcelos, like, fought, like, three, four unranked guys before uh, getting a, any sort of step up. He still hasn't gotten a step up, has he? Yeah, he was supposed to have had a samsa, but that fight fell apart. So. Oh my gosh, free free Barcelos. Let him let him be a title contender. He is one. Uh, yeah, so that was that was pretty much it for this card. There were other fights, but that's basically the only ones we had thoughts on for now. And uh, next week, sorry to say, just regard to like the total total fights, like things that make us interested on both sides. There are none. Um, there are none. Yeah. But we're going to talk about the main event because it's the main event, right? <laughs> yeah, in the spirit of positivity, there are some fighters on this card that we are... Uh, should I say enthusiastic? I mean, we're enthusiastic about Blades. Uh, other than that, there are like guys that we have vague interest in, but the fights aren't very well put together on this one, I think. Yeah, it's like every time I see a name, I'm like, yeah, I kind of... I, I think I care. Um, I see the other person, I'm like, well, I, I either don't know who that is, and you, know, you can blame me for that for not... Like, who has the time? Who has the time to figure that out? Um, or it's just like that person just isn't good enough to make me interested. But uh, main event, Curtis Blades versus Derek Lewis. Uh, I think everyone's making this about, you know, is Derek Lewis just going to get up? <laughs> and uh, is it going to matter that, that Blades is going to be able to take him down? And, you know, what, what's, what's your, main, your main read here? Uh, I mean, it's pretty much just Lewis couldn't really... Because, uh, I mean, you mentioned in your article that Lewis isn't, like, a magical get-upper. He's just super athletic and does decent fundamental things to get up uh, off his back. That's right. But we did saw we did see that kind of fail against Daniel Cormier, who was able to um, mat-wrestle him and chain the takedown attempts. So I think Curtis Blades just kind of sticks to him. And there is kind of a threat here of Blades. Like, we saw against Volkov that uh, Blades doesn't necessarily have, like, a gas tank to wrestle the entire time with the more mobile style that he's using to set up his takedowns. Right. So there's something there for Lewis, but also Lewis is even more gassy. So it's tough for Derek Lewis. I think the odds are about right, and Blades probably just uh, wrecks him on top at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling. Uh, things to consider are that Blades is huge. <laughs> so when he does get yeah. a solid position on top, it's going to be really rough. Um, other things to consider are the, the setups, basically that that blades is getting really good at you know responsibly fainting now uh his faint game has always been there you know for for a decent run but it got him in trouble against Ngannou in the rematch because he wasn't really good at measuring his distance while fainting so he was there to be hit now he's using a lot more in and out movement uh, level changing on it just a lot of variance on his one two it's it's given it's going a long way for him uh he basically controlled volkov the entire time with just that dynamic in his double leg um and yeah, I think when he does take him down, because he's going he's gonna to take him down, um, I think when he does take him down, the thing is that Lewis's get-up game is all based around 
uh, creating space for, on the hips or creating space in the upper body so you can shrimp and get to belly down and then to stand right up uh, from there, which is a very basic way to get up. The risk there, obviously, like, why doesn't everyone do that? It's like, well, what if they, you know, put hooks in and take your back and then, now they have their back? Um, but that's the entire MMA get up meta, like, against the cage. It's like you're putting your back to the cage and getting up there and you just have to sacrifice one position for something that you have to navigate through next. It's it's chain chain wrestling, get into the next position, deal with the next position. So it's not like there's anything new or, like you said, magic or different about Derek Lewis's game. It's just the heavyweights aren't really good in that position. Like, they're not really good in turtle. They're not really good at putting hooks in the back. They're not good at locking down back control, which is why Daniel Cormier, who's a much better grappler and has a folk base and comes from AKA, which is really good at the turtle ride, shut him down there. Um, it, also, if you watch his regional career, uh, Derek Lewis had that same problem with Jared Rochalt. Jared Rochalt put a <laughs> heck of a ride on him from from the turtle position, referee's position. Um, it was actually really cool. <laughs> it was like there's the one the one Jared Rochalt fight that was actually pretty fun to watch um, because of his his top riding. So I think Lewis is going to give him that problem as well. I think he's well prepared to deal with that type of getup and the fact that getting up from that position gives up rear standing. Uh, Curtis Blades is very good uh, from rear standing, from body locks, uh, big mat returns, big uh, like high, high like chest <laughs> lock and mat returns. I don't know why he does it that way. Uh, Ryan, I think, might have asked him in their interview, but I don't remember. Um, and it goes up underneath the armpits, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he finishes it really high, like he yanks up from from the waist and it goes high. But it, it just Derek, the way Derek Lewis likes to grapple defensively, I think, plays into the way that Curtis Blades fights. And uh, I think his, his setups are going to be fairly reliable because I think Blades is a counterpuncher. I mean, Lewis is a counterpuncher, so, you know, being an in-out, fainty, one-two guy should be a good way to draw out those counters and find your entries, um, which is exactly what he did to Volkov. So I think it's a good matchup for him. It, it, there's the danger that there is for every Derek Lewis fight, but I think um, it plays in his favor in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Blades kind of went a decent stretch of fights, getting hurt and, like, every fight like he got hurt by Shamil which like Shamil's Shamil's a god that's true like Shamil's unironically a better technician than Derek Lewis but it's also like why are you getting hurt by Shamil if that makes sense uh like Lewis presents some danger there I think Blades is still pretty nascent on the feet when it isn't like setting up his wrestling so there's something there for Lewis if like he can keep it on the feet it's just you know that's obviously the question so yeah, I mean, if Blades gasses, he's going to be in a decent amount of trouble if Lewis isn't also gassed. But that's a lot of questions to ask of the guy who's clearly better at fighting. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the number one contender fight. I think it's just like a stay busy fight for Curtis Blades. Like, he already should have a title shot based on his current win streak, but he's definitely fighting for his title shot here. And Derek Lewis, I guess, also is. He's got a Blagoy uh, Ivanov... Ilya Latifi, the, did he? Was there an argument for him not winning the Latifi fight? I remember Latifi taking him down a bunch. Yeah, I think I gave it to Lewis, but I really wanted to give it to Latifi because mm. Latifi is cool. Maybe the ref fell off further, further through the fight, but uh... yeah, I think Lewis was like losing up until like this really big flurry at the end of the third round, which is pretty funny. But, no, yeah, I'm definitely uh, not going to try to think about the Atlantic fight, but <laughs> oh yeah, Lewis just got grappled for a round and then murdered him. Yeah. So, I mean, that could play out here, but I don't think it's likely that Lewis doesn't get grappled. I just, you you do have to wonder, like, how long is that going to last? Is Blades going to be able to finish him? And I think I think it's going to be uh, pretty rough 
for for Lewis. So, not fights, but just individual fighters. How about that? Are there any fighters you're looking forward to watching on this card? Uh, let's see. I'm taking a look at it. I know people are hyped about Tom Aspinall, but I kind of need to see more from him before I like take a look at that. Dan Hardy's really hyped about him because he's yeah. I mean, he <laughs> that's true. He trains with Darren Till, so you know that's a, a surefire mark of quality, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um. Eddie Wineland's back against John Castaneda. Wineland is, like, old now, which kind of sucks. But he's always been pretty fun to watch. He does some nice... Uh, he can, you know, draw guys onto his counters pretty well. He's solid in the pocket and in combination. Uh, I don't really know whether Castaneda's, like, going to give him too much challenge just because uh, he's, you know... With the only fight that we've seen him in, he got torn apart by Nathaniel Wood. But, uh, you know, could be fun. Uh, let's keep looking. I think... Uh... I don't know if it's going to be a good fight, but I'll just keep my eye on Julian Arosa versus Nate Landwehr because uh, yep. Julian Arosa did beat, uh, who's that? Sean Woodson. Sean Woodson. Like, a couple people were really excited about him because he's super tall, um, and they thought he was a good boxer, and he could not deal with pressure at all, and Arosa pressured him and actually fought a pretty smart fight and beat him, and uh, I don't know much about Landwehr, but he was M1 champion, so I think he's probably more competent than we're thinking, just based on him being a no Wikipedia page having, you know, generic white guy. But <laughs> uh, I've seen Landwehr. He's yeah, Landwehr's not very good in my opinion. Uh, uh, he never mind. He kind of got boxed up by Darren Elkins, like way past prime. He like doesn't have defense whatsoever. Uh, he was supposed to fight Musar at one point, and that made all of us very mad. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, yeah. here's one. Uh, Shayna Dobson, who was a former fight site panelist guest. Oh, yeah. Who uh, actually, if you have watched her fights, I think she's an Elevation fight team as well. She's yeah. like doing some good stuff on the feet. She used that front snap kick to the body. Her one-two is getting pretty uh, decent. She's got some stuff. Um, and she had a nice uh, counter grappling performance against uh, Agapova. So uh, she's fighting Loma Lukbumin's best friend. So maybe we're not allowed to openly root for Shayna Dobson, but there's a there's a fight site connection there. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's take a look. And then Eamon Zahabi's the other fight site connection. Wait, so Casey O'Neill is... Is this her pro debut? Her first professional MMA fight? Because yeah, her record on the site says it's 0-0-0. That doesn't seem right. 5-0. and 0. Five Okay, and yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Oh, okay. UAE this might just be a UFC record. MMA, which I think is a yeah. Australian promotion. Topology had it had it right. Okay, yeah. The UFC website does not have yeah, it right. She's Tiger Muay Thai. Yeah, I mean, that's just a fight between two solid camps. I'm not, you know, I'm excited for it, I guess. Yeah, and then uh, Eamon well, Zahabi is, is good, right? Yeah, Eamon Zahabi's a friend of ours, so... <laughs> that good, too. I don't know smart. anything about Draco Rodriguez. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's, uh... He's TriStar, and they tend to have relatively functional games. Well, I think we'll have more to say about him after the fight, just because I, I didn't study any of his fights before this, so I don't have anything to recall, but afterward, we'll talk about him. And, uh, yeah, we actually... Funny thing is, we took questions from uh, Discord patrons and Twitter followers before we started this, because we thought we weren't going to go that long on, on the card recaps and previews. We actually did pretty good. We made it to 50 minutes, but we already took the questions, so we're going to do it anyway. So we're going to rapid fire these. Yeah, yeah. Are right, you ready for questions? Yeah, let's go. Okay. 20 questions. So the first one is from Lev from Discord. 
Uh, he said, how far can Raphael Fazeev go? Uh, I mean, I think there are some limitations there in terms of, well, f first of all, we've kind of yet to see him as a wrestler or a grappler. Uh, I don't think anyone's really tried that on him. I think he's he's looked like a decent clincher, I think. But, uh, yeah, oh, there's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. Uh, I think the bigger issue that we've seen, like that isn't just presumption, is that uh, he kind of lets people back into the fight when he's not just killing them early. Like, he killed Moicano early, but uh, Alex White was able to drag an uglier fight out of him late. Mark Chikisi was able to do the same thing, uh, where, like, you know, he stops being able... He, like, his game doesn't really build on itself to the way that you might expect from someone who's so body-kicky and, like, boxy. So, uh, I don't know. Like, if you look at the rankings, I've, I still think Demiris Magulov is probably the most promising uh, prospect there, but he also never fights. So, that's unfortunate. But uh, there are a bunch of top 15ers that I think he could give a really hard time. Even the ones that aren't completely fake top 15ers, like Ally Quinta. Um, let's take a look. So lightweight, like, Fiziev against someone like Paul Felder or uh, Fajeda could be... Well, Fajeda might test the grappling a bit too much, but it could be interesting. Um, Dan Hooker, like, I think they're teammates, but uh, Fiziev probably has a lot of success body kicking him and oh, yeah. is a lot better in the pocket. So there's that. Um, I mean, yeah, he could go far. Like, I, I think the rankings are kind of in a weird place just because there are guys like Ferguson who are grandfathered in at this point. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for him. Me too. Yeah, I think just being, first of all, just being a good kicker can go yeah. pretty far with the, the weight lightweight is currently. So uh, let's let's see how that develops. But, yeah, I think he could be a top five-ish type of dude. Um, perhaps even receive a title shot someday. We'll find out. Um, cool. So next is a question from Sam Not Samuel, who is a Twitter friend and a Discord patron, and he wants to know what we think of Kay Hansen as a prospect. Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, no, I don't. You said that she's a wrestler, so I'm gonna Correct. defer to you. Yes. So uh, I don't know if she like has an amateur wrestling background, but I have watched her fight, and she is a wrestler. Um, <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> where it came from, but she definitely is one. She's very athletic. Um, she's the one that was like supposed to have. Uh, like a scholarship to Harvard or something like that for softball and then didn't go. Um, and then mm -hmm. she's also the one that was like being controlled by her very right wing father. And she like posted, she, I don't know she posted stuff. She's like wearing stuff at weigh-ins that was like made it seem like she had really right wing politics, but then it turns out that she was in a like manipulative relationship with her father. And then she got away from him and now she paints aliens and stuff. So <laughs> she, <laughs> she might be cool. Um, and yeah, I just, from her last fight that she lost, unfortunately, uh, she fought Corey McKenna, who actually, despite looking like she should not be able to fight, is pretty decent uh, for the division. She can grapple really well, and Hanson, like I said, is, is a wrestler. She was hitting really nice reactive doubles. She was uh, chain wrestling a little bit. Her ground game looked uh, you know, decently developed. I think she's a 10th planet person. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Just being like an athletic wrestler who is young and developing makes me think that she can go pretty far in the division just because uh, there aren't that many of them, but she looked pretty fluid and uh, strong. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's weird because, like, Sarah McMahon has that skill set, obviously, at a, at a higher level in a worse division and can't seem to get, you know, sustained success going. <laughs> but I think that's also more of just a Sarah McMahon thing where she has some sort of blocks that just she drops out of fights and, like, just cannot... I don't think she likes fighting. I don't think she likes like fighting through not even adversity. Just like doesn't want to do it anymore. She just wants like grapple and control or like 
Uh, she's more of an athlete than a fighter, but I, I don't think that's the case for uh, for Hanson. So uh, we'll see what happens with her. So thank you for that question, Sam. Not Samuel. Um, <laughs> here's a cool one from uh, Kylan, who is a, a longtime Discord patron. Um, so kind of on the topic of Usman versus Burns, uh, he wants to talk about former training partners fighting each other. Uh, how do you think being a former training partner, excuse me, can affect the way the matchup will go? Are there certain types of fighters? Do you think this dynamic might favor or disfavor? Uh, I mean, well, I think one interesting thing that you can note in, like, the last couple is that we've seen relatively smart approaches, like, smarter than we thought from um, training partners who might have, like, I, I think TJ Dillashaw was, like, a big underdog to Cody Garbrandt on the books when they fought the first time, which was kind of silly. But even with that, you could see Dillashaw having, like, a very keen understanding of what Cody Garbrandt does up until the last knockdown, right? Like, he was... Um, dipping out off his entries, and he was taking proactive defensive measures and, like, clinching. And you could see that in Burns-Usman, too, where Burns had a very good idea of what Usman does and what makes him uncomfortable and how to deal with that. And the fact that it coincided with our very smart reads on the fight aside, uh, the fact that he was able to do it kind of speaks to the um, how they interacted in training. And I think it's not going to, like, necessarily lead a worse fighter to win over a better fighter, just because, like, in training, there are a bunch of different things, right? You're not, unless you're in hoofed, you're probably not going 100% all the time. <laughs> and um, there's a lot of, you know, very specific sport training that uh, doesn't carry over to general sparring. But it's it's an interesting consideration. I think it's, like, it's tough to, I don't think you can, like, uniformly say it favors a certain type of fighter or not. I think the ones who are more adaptive are probably going to be able to take those lessons more. But, you know, it's... At this point, after Usman Burns was way more competitive than we thought, it's definitely something to look out for. Yeah, I'm thinking of some classic examples, like Chuck Liddell versus Tito Ortiz is like the first big, you know, former teammates fighting example in MMA. And I think the dynamic in training, like, even if you watch this, like, a documentary about it, the dynamic in training is that Chuck was beating his ass all the time. <laughs> like, he did not have a hard time with him ever. Um, <laughs> and then you saw it in the fights. He, he beat him off really badly in the fights. So I think there's that, like if you're just completely destroying someone in training all the time, uh, that's probably going to affect things. Uh, a more prominent one that came along later was like Rashad Evans versus John Jones. Um, recently, I think Rashad might have even said it, um, but come out and said it, that like Jones was better than him in training. He knew he wasn't going to win based on the training, even though the narrative in the fight was Rashad like talking about how one time he held him down. <laughs> like It was this whole thing about he held him down in training once, but then it turned out that that was actually just a, an outlier <laughs> incident. Uh, Jones was beating him up in training all the time, and I don't think that would have made Rashad more or less likely to win if he hadn't known that, but it's just like he didn't really take risks in that fight. He just tried, kind of tried to, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to watch it again to figure it out, but <laughs> uh, that's another example. One that reminds me more of, of Burns versus Usman is uh, it's a funny one. Uh, Melvin Gillard versus Cowboy Cerrone. I think it was yes. on, like, the Denver card. I think it was a uh, Edgar some, something. It was an Edgar fight, maybe. Um, it was the, was the main event. But uh, I think even going into the fight, it was, like, a thing that Gillard too. That, that Cowboy beats him up uh, in the gym. And Cowboy's, like, I don't know if he's a gym bully, but he's definitely a gym, like, enforcer. And, like, he, like, puts people down in training a lot and, like, is very dangerous to train with. And I think Gillard had had a lot of experience with Cowboy beating his ass, but he also probably knew Cowboy better than most people and knew, like, oh, okay, he's a slow starter. 
He's not good on, on the back foot, you know, without besides the knee, which came later. Uh, so I just need to freaking come out and blast him, uh, which is what he did. And it worked really well. <laughs> and he rocked him. But then, unfortunately, Cowboy, oh, I guess fortunately, survived the situation and uh, started kicking him. And then he won. But, you know, I, that one does remind me of Boone's, Burns versus Usman, where he knew, like, this is what I have to do. And I have to do it right away um, in order to win. And it almost worked. Um, I can't think of any others besides the Team Alpha Male example. Yeah, that's a good one. Like I don't, uh, teammates don't tend to fight each other that often, obviously. Yeah. So it's tough to think of. Usually, uh, the, the end part of the question is like, are there certain types of fighters you think it favors? Um, I think it, if it's like a grappler and someone who isn't a grappler, I think it favors the non, the person who wants to not get grappled, just because like the more you can know like how they're gonna do it, the more you can plan to take that away from them. And the grappler, it's like, you're going to have to force it a lot more. You have to come up with new ways to enforce that. Basically, the person who, like, wants to do the thing to you versus the person who has the thing done to them. The person who has the thing done to them is probably going to be favored because, you know, by that dynamic, just because they, they're they the one who can adjust, uh, where the other person is just going to try to do the same thing. So they're the ones going to come out and surprise you. That's, that's kind of how I feel about that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if there are guys with, like, a very signature approach... Um, it's, I think that's kind of what I mentioned with the adaptiveness, is that guys aren't generally going to change unless they have to. So someone who keeps winning in training, for instance, might just come out and try to do the same thing, and if someone game plans very well for it, there's something there. But then again, there's a reason why they were always winning in training as well. Right, so right. It's, I don't really know if there's like a uniform way to put it. It's just something to consider in every fight, I guess. Agreed. Uh Here's another one. This one is from my friend Willie, who I went to college with and trained an MMA club with, and he's a wrestler. Uh, not that any of that is relevant to this question, but uh, which UFC champion would you most like to fight and least like to fight? <laughs> and uh, I think he said, assuming you know, weights, weights are equal. Uh, man, that's tough. Champions are scary, and I'm very unathletic and bad at this. So, <laughs> uh, let's see. Who, who will hurt me the least? Shit. Okay, I don't want to feed into the Volkanovski thing, but Volkanovski might either just knock me out quick or just, you know, not kill me for the rest of the fight, You're going maybe. the path of least resistance. You just don't want to get, get hurt too bad. Pretty much. Like, there's pretty much no chance I'm winning, even against, like, the heavyweights, because, you know, I am sub-heavyweight tier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How about you? Well, Stipe, I couldn't take him down, and he would outbox me. Um, even though he's pretty kickable, but he would punch me and I couldn't take him down. So that would be bad. Um, lay heavyweight is Jan Blachowicz, who maybe I could wrestle him, but he's also very physical. Uh, he's a good kicker. He is hard to kick, so that would be bad for me. And he's a good counter puncher in, in some situations, and I'm pretty sloppy with that, so I think he'd knock me out. Um, Izzy would, would fuck me up. Um, <laughs> Usman, no. Uh, Dust. Who's the lightweight champion? Dustin Poirier? Yeah, I'll call... Let's call it Dustin. Hmm. I mean, he would definitely knock me out, but... <laughs> just with his his vulnerabilities to... Does he have a vulnerability to being kicked? Am I making that up? Yeah. Uh, he did he, get he kicked a bunch, kick but... Um, and Miller. Yeah, so maybe I could kick him. Maybe I could take him down. Uh, he would definitely submit me, even if I took him down. But, uh... So maybe <laughs> Dustin Poirier, if you consider him the champion. Uh, not Max... Uh, not Yen, definitely not Yen, um, definitely not Figgy. Um, I don't think I have a good time with any of them. I'm just gonna say, uh, Dustin Foy is the one I would most like to fight. 
And the one I would least like to fight is uh, probably Usman. <laughs> yeah, Usman seems very bad to fight. Seems unpleasant. Uh, not that I think I could beat any of them. Just try to if I if I was trying to give myself a shot at all, if it was like life or death, um, and I, just had, I had to try. I, I would try against Dustin. If it was life or death, I would just die. Yeah, I, I would die too, but I'd, I'd, I'd die trying. <laughs> Thanks, Willie, for making us feel bad. Um, yeah, next one is uh, about Jan Blahovitz. It's from Juice of the Guilds, who often contributes questions when I ask them for the wrestling podcast. So he's he's a good man. Um, Speaking of Jan Blahovitz, he wants to know if he can implement a ground game on Izzy. Would he be successful with takedowns or ground control or submissions or ground and pound? What do you think about him as an MMA wrestler? Uh, I don't have very nuanced takes on this because I'm not the wrestling guy. Um, but the fact that he got taken down and controlled by Gustafson is kind of a bad deal. He looks like a decent grappler. Uh, he did. I think he tapped out Nikita Krylov with like this really weird arm triangle. I don't remember like the details, but he was like kind of hugging was, him from uh, the side. I believe it was that he has controlling him like on his butt against the cage, and then when he was getting up, he got the head and arm grip, and I think he got it uh, on on the getup. Yeah, he like got it, but also it was like instead of I made that bellying down. <laughs> I mean, I trust you, but instead of like bellying down, he was like sideways mounting him, which was very weird. But uh, he also got, like, a standing RNC on Devin Clark, which is, like, I guess, like, opportunism points. Uh, I don't think there's much to say that he can wrestle Izzy. Um, Izzy was able to... Uh, he was taken down by Romero, I think, but also just, like, wasn't really held down at all at any point. So, right. I don't know. Tough to say. Blahovich hasn't really done, like, a dedicated wrestling game against anyone. So, pretty much just presumption. Um, yeah, if he's going to implement control, it's going to be... You know, trying to like lean on him on the cage because we have seen that before from him. Yeah, uh, him being like at least hard to deal with in those positions. I think he's better as like a don't do this to me type of guy rather than imposing it on you. Um, like like uh, Shiram said, he did get taken down in top game by Gustafson. Um, I don't think he's particularly good off his back, which is fine because he's a light heavyweight. Um, but yeah, he's not like a leg attacker as a wrestler. Um, and I think most of it is just uh. Like you said, opportunism, and Izzy's not an easy person to wrestle against, which is why Yoel didn't have that much success, and uh, yeah. why pretty much no one besides like Marvin Vittori has like really tried to wrestle him a lot, um, besides like his first his UFC debut. So it's there's not enough information about Izzy as a wrestler for me to really speak confidently. Oh, I guess Kelvin tried to take him down a couple of times, but those were bad. bad yeah, times. it didn't really go well either. <laughs> those weren't good. That wasn't a good try. So it does not doesn't really give me much to work with. So. Sorry, not much I can say about that question. Um, here's one I love. Uh, I'm really excited about this one. It's another one from Kylan. He was just firing him off. Um, he said, if MMA gyms had team matches, like dual meets in the style of wrestling, how would you want matches scored, and which teams would you be most interested in seeing matched up? So, in a wrestling dual meet, if you win your match by less than 8 points, it gives 3 points to your team. If you win by 8 points to 14 points, it gives 4 points to your team. If you win by 15 points, it's a technical fall. The match ends and it's five points for your team. If you pin them, it's six points for your team. And then, you know, the team scores that up as you go through for 10 matches and, you know, most most points for whatever team wins. Um, I think you could totally set up an MMA event that is like, like that, you know, wait to wait. Each team puts out one guy. Um, it would have to be like if you shut them out on all three rounds, that could be bonus points. Like if you win... A decision and you both you know win rounds it's like three points 
right? Yeah. But then if you shut them out completely and they don't get win any rounds, maybe that's four points. Um, if you get a 10-8 at all, it could be five points or like a 10-7, any, any bonus points. And then if you finish them, it's six. How does that, does yeah. that seem right? Yeah, I mean, you could probably also define it based on the point spread. Like, that's not one thing that um, betting does a lot where you can, you know, is it more than two or three points uh, gap? It's just tough to do in MMA because, like, right. judging is bad. So, like, a 10-8 so is probably do, like, a 10-9. A system in the fight. Like, I wouldn't be, like, yeah. anything quantified by the fight that would score the points. I think it would have yeah, to that'd be the result. Yeah, but it'd be, like, um, if the judging were more reliable, that'd be pretty interesting. As for the teams I'd like to see... Um, I mean, pretty much the winner would probably be, like, TMT, <laughs> so, I guess, spoiler, but, I don't know, like, there aren't a ton of, like, super teams left outside of that, are there? Like, AKA yeah. is pretty much done. There's a guy at every weight. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure you can find, like, an NATT guy at every weight, but also, yeah, like, I'm not sure how many of them are, like, elite at this point. Well, I mean, that's not really, but it's, like, kind of what they did in the Ultimate Fighter with the uh, ATT versus Black Zillions, but it was, like, two weight classes. So in this case, it would be like, I guess you, you wouldn't have to do one guy per weight. You could do it that way. But yeah, I would love to see this, and I would love to see Tiger Muay Thai get involved. I'd love to see uh, Hoof Jim get involved. I'd love to see ATT yeah. get involved. Um, I don't think AKA really has a depth without the Russians, so I don't think I would yeah, see them do it. Um, I'm sure TriStar has enough people. But yeah, whoever has enough people, I'd like to see it. Uh, oh yeah, like the Ricardo Almeida gym in New Jersey with like Edgar and oh, these yeah. guys. That could be good. Oh man, prime prime Novo Unyao. Oh, uh, they like, kill Team Alpha Male and Adol Me. <laughs> <laughs> That's just mean. That would be pretty amazing. Uh, but yeah, I, I would like to see that. I would like to set that up. When uh, Faber said, loses to Barrow, immediately moves up, loses to Aldo. <laughs> six points right off the bat. But yeah, I, uh, that could set up a really cool dynamic where like maybe it, you know because the matchmaking wouldn't be totally fair. It'd be just like whoever your guy is. So it wouldn't be like, oh, the champion is fighting someone near his level. It could be just like whoever they have. So it could be like an unranked fighter versus the champion. Um, but then like your team is down by six and you need the finish or something like that. That could be a cool oh, yeah. situation. Um, yeah, I'd like that. <laughs> That'd be cool. Cool. This next question comes from Eric Stinton, who writes for SureDog. And he interviewed me once and that was fun. And he seems like a good guy. Uh, he said, what are some of the best jab performances in MMA? Uh, I mean, the obvious answer is probably Holloway Aldo. Uh, Holloway Aldo 2 was a really good one where he was able to draw out um, Aldo's defensive maneuvers, obviously, and draw him into exchanges with the jab where he would win them. Uh, well, not routinely win them, but at least force Aldo to work and eventually start winning them by winning the positions. Um, Aldo Edgar 1 was a really good one just because it was really surprising. Uh, Aldo wasn't much of a jabber before that, but uh, he really intercepted Edgar's rushes with the jab and uh, really punished him for his linear entries. Uh, a lot of Calvin Cater fights, where you know a lot of them were just jab clinics. Lamas is a good one, where he was able to um, draw his hands out and hook around it. Uh, Burgos, um, where he drew out Burgos' defensive reactions and punished him for it. Uh, Fishgold, where he just pretty much gassed him out with the jab and uh, punched him a lot. So there are a lot of them. Uh, the best one, I'd still go with Max. Max Aldo, too, just because of how good Aldo is at pretty much everything. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there are a ton. I'm going to go with uh, GSP Koscheck, too, because he broke his face. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, so it's Koscheck. Koscheck was that good. Is that hard not to jab? I mean, to, like, you know, not to be jabbed, but he did break his face with it, and he just continued to jab him for 25 minutes because I think he might be a 
sadist. <laughs> he just kept doing it. He never threw in a right hand. He just kept jabbing him in the same spot. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like a classic good jab performance. But I don't know. I don't really... I don't really know. But <laughs> we're just going to move on. We're already pretty pretty deep into this. Yeah. Um, Alex Caffiti, after I said no more questions, she, she put her question in. So, I mean, we shouldn't answer it. But she said pros and cons of the Ultimate Fighter in 2021. Do you see any pros? Yeah, I don't think there are any pros. I mean, I, I guess you could technically say that, like, a larger tournament format is good, better than, like, Contender Series, yeah. because it gives you a bigger sample size. Right. Like, you know, Contender Series has, like, one cool finish, and suddenly a guy who's bad is in the UFC. But, you know, like, the whole reality show thing is stupid, and it should be done. Yeah, if they, like... One of the seasons I liked was uh, when they, like, rebooted the show a little bit in season 17. That was uh, Joan Sun in that season. I've watched, like, every season. I don't, I don't like them, but I still watch I them. I pity you. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just want to see the fights. Um, but the reboot, they made it a lot less, like... They didn't try to, like, do house drama. They just did, like, telling the fighters' stories and made it very personal. Um, and they mixed a lot of that in there and, like, showed a lot of the behind-the-scenes of the training. and the, It was good. Um, so I think it just depends on the talent selection for the show. Like, who were the fighters? So if the fighters are any good, I, I love the Ultimate Fighters, I love tournaments, and I love learning more about fighters who are good. Um, so, like, the flyweight season was awesome. Um, yeah. they've, they've had a bunch of good seasons because there were good fighters on them, and that's what makes the season good. Um, so if pros would be if there's good fighters, then we get to learn more about good fighters and care about them more and give them more exposure, and the cons would be this, like, unwarranted attention for fighters who shouldn't be taking time away from the good fighters who are already in the UFC that don't get enough attention, like uh, a Sun Tzu. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, also the annoying thing is that uh, when guys are scheduled to be tough coaches, you know that the fight's only happening uh, in, like, yeah, six months. That always stinks. And then the fight, like, gets canceled a lot and, like, doesn't always happen. Yeah. It's rough. And then they, um, they, they slot in their replacement fighter as, as a coach sometimes, which I'm like, uh, what's the point of this? Um, <clears throat> anyway, next question. Thank you, Alex. Uh, this one is from Ronan, uh, whose name on Twitter is Assured, Assured Fob. Assured Fob. Is that a reference to something? I don't know. Probably. He's he's the best. Everyone loves Ronan. Uh, he's he's a very very nice man. Um, his question is a good question. It's what is the difference between a good puncher and a good boxer in MMA, and are there any genuinely good boxers in MMA? And is this question too long? I'll say no. <laughs> the question's not too long. Uh, the rest of it, I'm going to defer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the best example of a good puncher who is not a good... Well, okay. I think good puncher is, like, there are punchers who are good at boxing, and that accentuates how good they punch, and there are punchers who are just punchers. So, like, the, the example of the second one is, like, pretty much every heavyweight and Tyron Woodley uh, back in, like, his quote-unquote prime where, like, you know, uh, his threat was, I can punch, and he could punch very hard, but there wasn't, like, any level of depth there. Well, like, there are punchers who, like, they punch very hard and they have a system to enforce that punching, which is, like, you know, um, it's actually kind of tough to think about. Like, I think you could say, like, someone like Gilbert Burns, for instance, who, if you look at the Usman fight, he was, like, a lot of his game was built on being able to punch very hard, but he had a system for applying it, which means that he was more of a puncher than a boxer, but he could box to apply it. Um, in terms of who's a genuinely good boxer... I think if you, like, judge it on who could compete in professional boxing, there aren't any just because MMA, like, spreads your attention so much. But, you know, there are guys like Max Holloway who could... They have the understanding of a boxer in a lot of specific phases. 
uh, Jose Aldo. Like these are just you know who are our favorite fighters. But um, there there are guys who I would consider good boxers in general, even if they aren't like pro boxer world champion level, just because that's not feasible in MMA. Yeah, I think Yan's a really good boxer. Um, yeah, Yan definitely something that doesn't come up that often. I think, uh, but. Yeah, I, I, I had trouble with this distinction. I think uh, MMA fans have trouble with this, this distinction. Um, like, Kelvin Gastelum is someone that can punch pretty hard and, like, hurt people and, like, is, like, decently mechanical with, with his two punches that he knows how to do. Um, but, you know, that doesn't really make you a good boxer. It just means that you, you got good at punching people these ways. Um, but, like, the ring craft and, you know depth and you know, adaptability and the rest of the ancillary skills need to be there too yeah i mean if you in terms of mma standards if you look at someone like calvin cater who has a lot of trouble in terms of his ring craft and even his defense he's a genuinely great boxer for mma uh, it's just that in other like in actual professional boxing his flaws will be exploited a lot more harshly and you know like you kind of have to curve just because it's mma but um uh, like, a modicum of craft is kind of enough for me to say that someone's a, a good boxer for MMA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Thank you. I would like to move on to two more questions because they came in late, but they were good. Uh, one's from Polite Vulture, who does those uh, animated uh, videos, like hand-drawn uh, videos of MMA. Um, sometimes very good. breakdown form, sometimes just for artistic sake. They're very good. Um, and they, like I said, they do them by hand and before they were doing them by hand, like on a tablet or like on a phone or like something ridiculous. It's wild. Now they yeah. have like an actual setup. So very good. Um, but yeah, they want to know, uh, what's the best MMA character arc. And I don't know if you're going to take this as like technical arcs or like career arcs or like personal arcs, but you know, what's your, what's your take? Give one. That's actually one I have to think about. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like. Uh, Dustin Poirier is an interesting one, I think. Oh, that's mine. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, you know, you can explain Dustin Poirier. No, you go first. Um, Maybe we'll have to well, I, had, I had a bunch. I just had to pick one. But, yeah, I mean, Dustin Poirier is an interesting one just because he had such a defined mid-career reinvention. Um, and he's pretty much just stuck around after a bunch of pretty one-sided, embarrassing losses. Well, not embarrassing for, like, level of competition, but, you know, if you just look at him, you're like... Why do people think this guy's good? But then it turns out he's really, really good. And now he's finally gotten a, uh, a very marquee win in terms of Conor McGregor. And a bunch of very impressive wins that uh, probably don't get the attention they deserve, like Max Holloway, too, and um, Eddie Alvarez. So, yeah, I mean, you can. there's a very clear thread in the way that he's developed, where he went from, you know, a very fragile banger-type fighter to uh, one of the better boxers in MMA. That's another example that we should have brought up the last time. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> Yeah, I also think just if you're talking about like liter literal character, he's had a great one. Uh, first yeah, of all, true. he uh, he got a lot of attention because he upset Josh Grisby in his UFC debut, and Grisby was actually sitting for a title shot and uh, took a fight to stay stay uh, fresh and lost. Um, and then Grisby turned out to be like a really bad person. So yeah, wasn't he like a domestic abuser or something? Yeah, he's a bunch of stuff. So yeah. shout out, shout out for that. Um, but also, yeah, Dustin was, like, kind of, like, arrogant and, like, hot-headed and, like, was always beefing with people. Um, I watched Fightville, which is uh, about him and, and Tim Crater's gym uh, back when he was on the regionals in Louisiana. And that's an amazing documentary. And he didn't seem to be, like, a bad guy or anything there. He's just, you know, young. Um, yeah. Yeah. Normal, normal young people stuff. But he has become, like, one of the best people in MMA. 
by far, by far. Um, so a really cool guy, really wholesome, uh, you know, doing a lot of great charitable work and, you know, everybody loves him. It's just, he's, he's great. He's great. But I remember like the Michael Johnson fight, like before that he was like, talking uh, to yeah. trash, wasn't he? Like there's was a lot of heat. There's like a lot of the times. Yeah, I think that was kind of a continuation of ATT versus Black Zillions too. Yeah. Might be. But also like the Connor fight, like Connor really got under on his nerves and like had him acting up and stuff like that. But like, he just seems like he's a lot more mature now. And, uh, in a really good place so that's an all-around career arc also robbie lawler is, is one of the classic ones where he was yeah. like the hot thing in the ufc early on and then he took some losses and it was kind of a journeyman for a long time got a second chance in the ufc when they bought strike force and took it <laughs> <laughs> and, be, and again became one of the best boxers in mma there too um another another good boxer yeah, example uh usually the the career arc in mma if you're gonna get good at the end is because you learned how to box um but yeah, that that was that was a pretty amazing one, and uh, I don't know if there was like a personality component to that too. But I think Lawler was like supposed to have discipline issues, and I think he got that sorted out, and that's part of what leads to a resurgence, and like can create an arc. But uh, yeah, I like that. I liked that. Um, cool. That's a good question. That was fun. All right, one more, and I think you're gonna have a good time with this one, Shiram. This is yeah. from uh, his name is currently uh, Salamat Squad. On <laughs> on Twitter, he uh, he has a lot of respect for a uh, regional level and amateur uh, Russian MMA. Uh, his name is Luke, and his question is: What are the main differences from North American MMA, like the meta, and the Russian MMA meta, and what should we take into account matchup wise when we see these fights fighters cross over? Hmm. So one thing that Ryan's mentioned a lot, because most of my ACA knowledge that was like preliminary was from Ryan, is that uh, Russian fighters tend to be A, better in transitions, and B, worse in terms of ring craft. And I think an interesting person to look at, and obviously I was going to bring this dude up, is Abdulaziz Abdulahabov. Because mm-hmm. if you look at his pressure game, it's kind of terrible in terms of ring craft. He's not a good pressure in terms of uh, cutting off the cage. He's constantly like jabbing and then stepping off to the side where he's like never, he gives his opponent an escape all the time. But if you look at like how he hits in transitions, uh, it's very good. Someone like Vartani is another good example, albeit a much better ring general, one of the best in the sport. But pretty much everyone in the Russian MMA game is very adept in between phases. And by pretty much everyone, I mean, you know, the guys who are like worth looking at, if that makes sense. But that's pretty much how the meta's developed. Another example is like if you look at the lightweight scene, um, a lot of the lightweights in the UFC tend to have a little bit more of like a, a jiu-jitsu slash guard playing type meta, which is weird. Like uh, Dustin Poirier has his guillotine. Um, Tony Ferguson was like a defined guard player for some reason for a long time. Uh, like he wasn't a, a great one necessarily, but you know, you saw enough of his guard, if that makes sense, that like, oh, this guy's a guard player. Where in Russia, it's a little bit more wrestling, which is one reason why I think um, Khabib was like, he'd probably look a little bit less dominant in, like, a Russian meta. But on the other hand, he'd also have a lot easier of a time pushing guys back to the fence. Uh, if, you know, if, like, top U.S. ring-crafty guys, if you face guys like Eddie Alvarez or Aldo, he'd have a lot tougher time pushing them to the fence than he would uh, Russian outfighters, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's... Um, in terms of matchup-wise, it's, again, like, case-by-case, fighter-by-fighter. Uh, there are fighters who struggle in transitions, who I think Russians would be a handful for. But on the other hand, you know, like, a really defined outfighter might give 
Russian pressure fighters some decent issues. Yeah, when I think of like the top Russians that we've looked at, like I think that they they deserve they're big threats in multiple areas, which isn't always the case for American fighters. Uh, it's typically like if you're a grappler, you're a grappler, and if you're a striker, you're a striker, and those two things don't usually go together. <laughs> like yeah. there aren't too many strikers who also have like good uh, you know top game games if that makes sense um yeah i'm speaking broadly but when i watch like a regional mma show in russia if i watch acb uh, in the old times or aca now um you just see a lot of depth um a lot of depth i mean that's their that's their premier league in russia and it's, that's a huge base of fighters and that's a huge percentage of their population that participates in combat sports so the average level is just going to be higher than it is in other places uh, even though you don't have the same pool that you would for a global organization like the ufc it's still you know this is probably one of the best places in the world for combat sports, period. And this is their main organization. So you're going to find a high level of fighters there. Also consider that, you know, the grappling arts are, are more ingrained in their culture. You know, wrestling, both uh, freestyle and Greco. Uh, combat Sambo, obviously. Sambo, Judo, uh, kickboxing, Sanda. Like, all, all those sports are a lot more common there. Um, so you're seeing these backgrounds a lot. Uh, just, like, one-off observations is, like spinning <laughs> oh that's true spinning is part of the russian meta on the feet um i think uh luca bordon said it I, I don't remember exactly how he described it but he said like a russian kickboxer they're either like murder puncher you know body snatcher pressure guys or they're spinny outside guys those are the two types of <laughs> strikers that russia produces and that is pretty much what we've it's very seen. true yeah <laughs> on this scene um and not every fighter in aca is russian you also have brazilians you also have like Armenians, yeah, there's, there's Georgians, there's a mix, but uh, for the most part, um, that that's what you see is those two dichotomies. I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, just like the grappling depth is a lot a higher level, uh, the wrestling depth at a higher level, um, and yeah, I, I think I think being able to handle multiple arts at once and transitions and, and being more complete mixed martial artists is pretty common. Um, athletically, physically, they seem to be at least on the same level. Um, as you know, global or U.S. fighters, if not at a higher level, they're huge. They're so yeah. big. Um, <laughs> if you look at like Edward Vartanian, he's bigger than Khabib. Um, if you look at like Ali Bagov, I don't know how he was making lightweight for that long. Um, it, this is probably because he's short, but like Oleg Borisov is like a, yeah, such straight a, up such tank. a little unit. Um, Rusam Karimov is pretty big. Like they're all really big for their weights. Um, but yeah, I, I just think uh, you find a little more depth in each art. Like you're gonna find like a really really high level striker like Alexander Shabli, or a really high level top game player like Ali Bagov, or you know a really high level everything doer <laughs> like Vart um, or Abdulaziz Abdulvakhabov. So it's just like I think just it might be a factor of it being you know close to being on par with the global organization because of the population and the culture and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I think those are some of the trends that come out. The spinning was my most important observation. Yeah, I mean, that's a fun topic, because I think it, it, we're probably not going to see it, but someone like AAA in the UFC would be, I think he'd be a menace, but we'd also see a lot of interesting limitations from him. Yeah, yeah. We just, like, I think the cage meta and, like, the just the winning, the winning meta, if that makes sense, just, like, the way you <laughs> win fights and the way you pursue wins the UFC and the way fighters develop, I think that's not really there. I think they just fight in in Russia, you know what I mean? They yeah, that's, do the thing. I get it. They just go and be good at everything. 
Um, so I think they might struggle with that a little bit. Um, like someone like Alexander Shadley takes a round and a half off sometimes to get his reads, and like you don't see that very often in UFC. And you see people drop weird fights all the time and make weird decisions about their careers. So there might be a more more career mismanagement, um, which isn't really the combat meta, but it is like the the overall meta of the of the game of the sport <laughs> over there. Um, I yeah. talked to uh, Georgie uh, on Twitter, who's like the Georgian MMA expert, and uh, he, he talks about all the time these guys like have really bad management, and they they're not having the best decisions made for their careers, and that's why all the time they're coming over to train in the U.S. or like signing with uh, Ali Abdelaziz or like Malki Kawa or whoever, because they need someone that can that can give them the right opportunities, and those are the ones that have the most resources resources and can stash them up. Uh, same with Kadyrov, they need sponsors, they need people to you know, fund their careers and their gyms and, uh, their leagues. And, uh, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> um, for better or for worse, it's, it's mostly for worse, but that's why it is that way. All right. This is a long podcast. Yeah. The questions thing with, um, also going over two cards. Was... I didn't want to back out of the questions. Yeah, that's true. It yeah, ended up kind of excessive, but I'm glad we did it. This was fun. Uh, next week, we'll, we're going to spend some time to tell you what we're going to do about next week. But next week, we'll probably briefly recap the results from the card displayed Derek Lewis card, which probably won't be very eventful. And then we're going to talk about uh, a way of measuring greatness in MMA, a way, a, a certain type of criteria for measuring an all-time great that has to do with wins, specifically about wins. So we're going to try to measure wins and uh, we're going to talk through a list of, of win collectors and uh, give you some insight into stuff we've been working on over the past year or so. And that should be fun, right? The list. Yeah, I'm excited for that. The, the list. Um, <laughs> There's one list. And uh, we'll explain much more, a lot of stuff about that, and we'll go through examples, and we'll, it's going to be a fun time. So stay tuned next week. Do you have anything to plug? Uh, nah, I mean, outside of this podcast, I haven't done anything in a long time, so... This is important, um, so don't that's true. that. This is the content. Um, I don't think I have anything either, but like in a week or so, I can write again because I'm not studying for exams as much, and uh, there will be articles for Bloody Elbow probably. Sorry, Fight Site nice. stands, but uh, they'll be back. So I can plug those next week. Cool. Yeah, guess that's it. All right, goodbye, cruel world. <laughs>